Merry Christmas. This is fun. We're just experiencing so many firsts as a church. Christmas Eve Eve service, Advent season, and we're wrapping up our Advent season really this morning and on the 23rd. And we've been speaking about the four traditional themes of Advent are peace, hope, joy, and love. And so we're talking about love today. And we've said that Advent is really this journey where we look back at what God has done in sending His Son, Jesus, We look to the sending of His Spirit where Jesus is with us all the time. And we long for the coming of Jesus when He returns and He ushers in His kingdom fully. And we've had this image of a suitcase. Because anytime you see someone with a suitcase, it tells you something. It tells you that they're on a journey, that they're not yet where they're going. And for us, it's the same thing. It's the same journey that we're on. While we're not what we want to be, we're not what we once were. And that's, that's something to celebrate. That's a, that's a journey of grace for all of us. As I was reading Matthew 1 this week and thinking about where God would lead us with this last Advent sermon for love, I stopped after I was reading it, after I was reading about when Joseph first found out the news that his betrothed wife, so his wife-to-be, was pregnant. And, and I said and I stopped on that because I noticed something, frankly, that I've never really noticed before, or if I have noticed it, haven't paid any attention to it before. And it was this, you know, the scriptures, to sum it up, the scriptures say that, that when, when Joseph uh, realized this, he, he resolved in himself to divorce his wife, his betrothed wife, quietly. And here's what stuck with me, because he didn't want to shame her. And I stopped on that word shame. And here's the reason I stopped there. My thought is this, Who taught Joseph that he should feel that way? Why was Joseph's first response, his knee-jerk reaction, to think that this was something bad that happened here? And so I I began to go on this journey of of shame in the Bible and where shame comes from. Uh, And that is what has led us to our sermon today. So the journey of Advent is a journey through a lost love, which leads to shame, with a redeemed love, ushered in by Jesus' incarnation, and to a restored love where we've been adopted into God's family. And that's the journey we're going to go on. Those are the three big themes we're going to talk about today. So the, the, kind of the big idea of where we're going today is this. The love of God frees us from a life of shame. That's what the love of God does. And this is an important sermon. This is an important sermon for all of us because to one degree or another, all of us deal with shame in our lives. And, and the shame can hit us in different ways because it's, it's an effect of the fall, effect of what has happened in the garden. For some of us, it's things that have been done to us that have caused the shame, that are out of our control. For others of us, it's things that we've done in our life that cause us shame. And we can't seem to really grasp the love of God at times in our life because of the presence of that shame in our lives. So I just want to stop and pray right now uh, for God to meet us here in a special way as we ask him to come a little deeper into our hearts, to peel back the layers of our heart a little more so that we can see him more clearly. So let's pray together. Our Father, we don't come to this subject lightly when it comes to your love. The scriptures say that you are love and that your perfect love casts out fear. And Father, within each of us, there there are all these uh, imposters uh, that try to cover up the real us. Uh, But Jesus, you meet us right where we're at. 
and you give us love. Father, within each of us, there's this imposter of shame that tells us to go and hide ourselves, to isolate ourselves, and that'll be the way that we find hope. So for some of us in here, we're, we're desperately hopeless today, and that's why we showed up. For others of us, we need to be reminded about your love. And so wherever we are, God, I pray that you'd meet us here this morning and you should do a great work in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So let's look at this first kind of theme, lost love, the entrance of shame into the world. If you have a Bible, open up to Genesis. We're going to be looking at Genesis, a couple passages here. And we're just asking, really, where did this idea of shame, where did it come from? Is it a natural thing? Is it, is it something that we should just, it's part of life, so we should just deal with it? Where does God have an answer for that? Should we just stay content to live in shame? Or does God meet us there and does he deal with that? Genesis uh, 2.25 uh, says this right here in your Bible. And the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, this is after they were created, were both naked. Or if you're, in Kentucky, if you're from Kentucky, you say naked. <laughs> They're both naked and what? Not ashamed. The scriptures say that Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with God and indicating that there was this nearness and this vulnerability that they were able to experience with God. This nearness, this trust, this obedience and vulnerability, they were all indications of an appropriate response to a healthy relationship. Those are characteristics of a healthy relationship where you're not afraid to let your guard down, where you're not afraid to be near, where you're not afraid to be vulnerable. And friends, this is the picture of what Jesus came to redeem in all of us. This is the reason why he came. So that we could be free to be who God created us to be without having to put up all of these walls around us. And I want you to let that sit for a second. To walk with God in the cool of the day. To experience his love without having to protect yourself. Is that how you think of God? Is that how you experience God? When you think about God and you think about yourself in relationship to God, is that the first thing that comes to your mind? I don't know about you, but it often is not for me. It's not how I experience it, and here's why. Genesis 3, 6 through 11. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Notice the first thing they realize in the garden, that they're exposed, that they're without cover, that they're vulnerable that they're open before God. They realize this for the first time. And for the first time in the history of the world, that's a problem. Do you see the significance there? This was never a problem before. 
This was always the case. But for the first time in the history of the world, it was a problem to be vulnerable and exposed before God. Friends, this is the birth of shame in the world. This is where it comes from for all of us. We do the exact same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden. From this point forward, mankind will find himself hiding in many different iterations. We'll hide behind our job, behind our family, behind our house, behind our bank account. We'll hide behind all of different things. We'll hide behind a name. We'll find anything that we can to hide behind. And we'll try to make a name for it ourselves in the midst of that. But it won't be until Jesus comes, which we're celebrating Advent when he came, Jesus comes that we find something that can actually clothe us with what we're looking for. We'll be able to hide in his righteousness. And that's the journey of what Advent's all about. So my question to you is this, what is shame? I was reading this great book this week uh, by Kurt Thompson, and he kind of explains it like this. Guilt is something I feel because I've done something bad. So we get that. We feel guilty. We understand what it means to do something bad. He says that shame is something I feel because I am bad. Do you see the difference in the two between guilt and between shame? Shame is an identity. It shades everything that we do. Everything is influenced by shame when we're living under its power. This is why it's so hard to spot it in our lives. Shame isn't a sinful action that we commit, but it's the posture of the heart that leaves us hopelessly lost in our sin. You know what shame's main characteristic is? Is that it tells you to isolate yourself. Shame tells you to isolate yourself. You can't be known. You've got to hide this. You've got to cover it up. You can't let anyone know about this. God cannot know this about your life. And we trick ourselves into thinking that we can, we can have a secret life that God actually doesn't know about. And so shame begins to fill our hearts. And so God asked this question to Adam, and I've always found this interesting because Eve was the one that took the fruit. But he comes and he asks Adam. And why is that? I'm not going to get into the, the fullness of this, but Adam was responsible for what happened there. He didn't step up to the plate there. So God asked this question to Adam, and he says, where are you? Now, do you think that God is asking for his global position, the GPS coordinates or something like that? He's not asking for that. He's asking in, in, more in terms of a relationship. Hey, Adam, where are you right now? Where are you, man? What's going on? Because we had this thing where we were walking in the cool of the day and we experienced relationship and love freely, but now you've sown some fig leaves for yourself that barely cover you up and you're hiding behind a tree in the garden. Where are you? You see, the two were no longer vulnerable and open to the things of God because shame had become the shadow that shielded everything in their hearts. That's what they chose to kind of live under in that moment. But I want you to notice what God does. This is really important. What does God do? Does he say, okay, you guys get out of here. He comes to them. He provides for them. He clothes them. He provides a way out, even though it's not... The same experiences they had in the garden where they walked in the cool of the day together, but he keeps coming to them. Friends, there's grace in Genesis 3. There's lots of grace there in what God does. There's lots of grace for the sinner. And the story of Advent is the story of how that grace unfolds over the entire Old Testament until our great Messiah, Jesus, comes in the New Testament. I love that God continues to come to them in that. And my question for you is this. Are you willing to be known before God? Are you willing to be known, therefore, before others because you're known by God? The question we ask ourselves is this, where are the walls for us? Where are the trees that we're hiding behind? Where are the fig leaves that we're trying to sew up for ourselves? 
What is the shame that, that has got us oppressed where we think we have got to do life on our own? Where's that at? We've got to identify that because it's keeping us from experiencing the love that God has for us. And, and whether you, you have a great, vibrant relationship with Jesus or you just stumbled in off the street today hopelessly looking for like one, one, one thing to help you, we all have shame in our lives. And, it, and it's best to identify it so that God can deal with it. The only remedy for shame is this, vulnerability. It's the only remedy for shame. The only remedy for shame is vulnerability because it draws us out of isolation. When we put ourselves before God and before other people, this is why David in Psalm 51, he prays, against you and you only have I sinned, God. We become vulnerable before God. So how can we invite God and others that we share life with in a deep relationship? That's the question. I saw this really beautifully with a guy that I discipled once. We were doing our typical thing in the morning meeting for discipleship, and, you know, some type of accountability question come up. And discipleship, that's where we hold one another accountable, encourage one another along the way, and getting God's word together. And there's this guy in my group, he, he, he was more vulnerable before the men in my group than I've really ever seen someone be vulnerable before. You see, he really struggled with this idea of shame. And, and it, was, it, was, it was killing his joy in Christ, and he didn't know really what to do about it. And finally, uh, he confessed with himself. And the, the way that shame hit him was with his personal appearance. Okay? And some of you, that's the way shame hits you. And so for him, he told us that every time that he gets in front of the mirror, that he whispers hateful things at himself because he hates what he sees in that mirror. Now, some of you do the same thing. Some of us hide behind other layers of shame. But whenever he brought that to our attention and trusted men that loved Jesus and that loved him, we began to draw him out of that isolation, begin to ask him how he's doing, or begin to remind him of the truth of what God's word actually says about his life. Because here's the deal. When you're whispering these things to yourself, when you're becoming isolated because of the shame of sin, you're fully convinced that that's who you are because that's the predominant voice in your life. But the narrative that God gives us of his grace is a much different narrative. And see, friends, we need other people in our lives to remind us of that narrative. We can't do it alone. That's why we're gathered here for worship this Sunday morning. We're gathered corporately because we're corporately reaching out to God and praising him for the work that he's done. And we're reminding one another. We're like little mirrors walking around to one another. Reminders of God's grace. This is why it's so important to make ourselves vulnerable before God and before other people. Because I'm convinced that there's, there's one formula for spiritual maturity. All of us that are believers in Jesus want to grow in Jesus. We want to become more mature in Christ. And there's one formula for it. And it's this right here. God's spirit uses God word, God's word and God's people to mature us. That's what we see all over the scriptures. That God's spirit uses God's word and God's people to mature us. If you take any of those out of the equation, I don't see how we mature. This is what God's word says all over it. I love what Brendan Manning said uh, in one of his books. He says this, In a futile attempt to erase our past, we deprive the community of our healing gift. If we conceal our wounds... Out of fear and shame, our inner darkness can either be illuminated or become a light for others. Friends, this is where Jesus finds us, hiding behind something. And he meets us and he reaches out and he says, where are you? 
And you see, the scriptures say that all of us have a response to that. So where are you? So what is God's response to this? Well, he, he sends Jesus. So redeemed love is ushered in by Jesus' incarnation. That incarnation, that big $10 word there, what that means is that Jesus, that God became flesh and made his dwelling place among us. That's what incarnation means, that, 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 that God put on a flesh suit and became like the people he created. That's what it means to incarnate. That's what God did. And if the only remedy for shame is vulnerability, how could we ever open ourselves up to God again and be weak and vulnerable before him? And here's the answer to that, that God had to first do it for us. That's why he came. He, he came and he opened himself to us. He made himself susceptible to the very people that he created that would actually murder him, but in his murder would actually save his people. It's the crazy thing that God does. This is what he does to free us from the shame of sin that plagues our lives. So we're going to read Hebrews chapter 2, verse, verses 9 through 11. We're going to look a little bit more deeply into what the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, really accomplished and what, what really we have in frame here. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. says this, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in order to bring many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through what? Suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed Call them brothers. So we have Jesus here, incarnating, coming to earth, tasting the shame of a sinner's death of isolation for everyone that would believe. This is what Jesus comes and he does. And we see that sin is always met with God's judgment. If we have sin, when we meet God's judgment, we cannot be with God. God cannot be in the presence of sin. And we all meet God's judgment, by the way. We all meet that. The question is, are we found to be righteous or are we found to be sinners? That's the question that we've got to kind of answer and unpack there. But Jesus, the, the necessity of Jesus coming was this, is that Jesus came to bear the punishment of sin for all who would believe. So that punishment for sin is what kind of brings the shame in us. And so when we continue to live in the shame, what we're saying is that, Jesus, what you did wasn't really necessary. I need to bear the sin myself. I need to live under the shame and oppression of sin myself. So it was, it was a dark and lonely road to Calvary's cross that Jesus endured for you and I. I was made aware of this uh, when I was in Israel recently, and I, I got to go into the house of Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time. And if you recall in the, uh, the Passion Week narratives, Jesus spends a night in jail at Caiaphas's house. And, and if you're like me, I'm thinking, okay, jail, I know what that looks like. I had no idea what that would mean for Jesus to spend a night in Caiaphas's jail. I've got a couple pictures on the screen. So this is a hole that's about 25 feet deep. We had the opportunity to go down in this hole and to look up. There was absolutely no light 
in the hole. There's another picture that kind of shows you a little more depth of it. You can see there's a light all the way down in the bottom. So they would have lowered Jesus down into this hole, and that's where he would have spent one of the nights. So as you picture that, I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to read parts of Psalm 88 for you. Just imagine Jesus enduring the sin and isolation that sin really leads us to. Imagine that as I read this. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. It was a dark, it was a lonely, isolated journey that Jesus had to go on to redeem us from the shame that sin brings. And as the Hebrew passage goes on to say, Jesus had to suffer this way so that we could find our righteousness in him because he didn't deserve to die, but he did die. And the death that he did die, he died in our place. So therefore, those that have faith in Jesus... They get the righteousness of God given to them, the full righteousness of God without the shame of sin because it's forgiven. It's cast as far as the east is from the west. And I love the Hebrews passage, what it says at the end of that. It says that because of this, because he's, he's done this work to bring many sons to glory, then it says this, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to call us sisters because of this work. That's the work that that Jesus' incarnation led to, was to the cross. And because of this, I mean, you've got to deal with the cross. You can't be neutral with the cross. Either you find your life in the life of Jesus, or you reject Jesus. It's one of, it's not that Jesus was just a prophet. Jesus was just a good guy. No, either he's Lord or he's not. And for those that find their life under the lordship of Jesus, we find great hope. That shame, isolation, and fear are not a part of our story anymore. They're not a part of our makeup anymore. You don't have to keep beating yourself up for the sin that you've done in your life. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. And in some ways, when we continue to beat ourselves up, we we say that the cross was not necessary, that we actually have a better way. And so it can actually be very sinful for us to beat ourselves up over sin. So this is why Jesus came. The love of God frees us from a life of shame. So let's lastly look at this, this point about restored love, where God calls us sons, where he adopts us into his family. You know, something that struck me as we were talking about the genealogy last week was this. While we look at the genealogy of Jesus, the, kind of the family tree of Jesus, we, we think about all of the people, all of the rebels, all the outcasts in his family tree, and we, we tend to stop at Jesus. But because of adoption through the Holy Spirit, we are grafted into that same tree. So if the genealogy would, to continue, it would have every name of those that call upon the name of God and look to Jesus for salvation. 
This, guys, I gotta, I gotta confess, this is one of my favorite, this is one of the most life-giving passages of Scripture in all of the Bible for me. And so I hold it very dear to my heart. It's Galatians 4, 4 through 7. It talks about this work that God's done. But, let me pause right there. Anytime we see the word but, we gotta go back and look before it and see what happened before that. Because he's making, there's, there's, a, there's a contrast. Even though something was true, now something else is true. So when you go back and you look at Galatians 4, 1 through 3, what you see is he says that, okay, we were, we were slaves to sin. We're slaves. But something else has happened, so let's keep reading. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And this is the spirit. This is what it cries out. Abba. Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So though we were slaves to sin because of what we accomplished with our life, God sent Jesus in the fullness of time, and he was born of a woman born under the law. Now Jesus had to be born under the law because we were born under the law. So if Jesus wasn't born under the law, how could he redeem those that are under the law? So what Jesus does is he comes and he lives a perfect life. The law, what it does, it has a lot of functions, but one of the functions that the law has is it shows us our sin. It shows us that nobody can live up to God's standard. And so Jesus being born of Mary via the Holy Spirit, born under the law, and he lives a, right, a perfectly righteous life, the life that none of us could ever live. So he's born under the law because he wants to redeem those who are also born under the law that will call upon his name. One of, one of the things that blows my mind about this is that the incarnation of Jesus, when Jesus, when God becomes a man, Jesus comes to earth. Jesus has become a man to never again not be a man. Think about that. When you meet Jesus face to face, he's still going to be the same man that came and died and rose. He's still going to be a man. I mean, what humility. What God does when he sends Jesus is he draws out the dignity with which all of us were created with. We were created to have dignity in our lives. But that dignity was lost with sin, with shame, with isolation. He draws it out, showing that we were actually made in his image. He draws out the dignity uh, inside of us. In order to save us, Jesus had to be one person, both divine and human, in order to... in order to give his sacrifice, which was of infinite value, to deliver us from the realm of darkness and transfer us, as Colossians says, into the kingdom of light. This is the work that Jesus came to do. So why would God do such a thing for us? Why would God do such a thing for such despicable sinners? You know what the Bible says? You look at Deuteronomy 7. It's been a passage I've been going back to. I've been mentioning it a lot. God didn't choose us because we were great to look at, because we had all this stuff to offer him. He chose us in love. 
Ephesians 1 says, In love He predestined us to be sons and daughters. God sent Jesus because He desperately loves us. And by sending His Son was the only way for us to to feel and to know that love. So you think about this. Uh, Even though God regenerates our hearts, so He gives us a new heart that can believe in God, you know, because we're dead in our sins and our trespasses, we can't choose God. If you're in here today and you say, I love God, I think Jesus Christ is the Messiah, He's the Savior. It's because God has put a new heart inside of you so that you can believe that. So God didn't stop by doing that. Even though he justifies us by faith and gives us new life, and so legally we're in a right standing with God, he doesn't stop there. But he restores the relationship with the Father, all in love. See, adoption is this work of grace that touches our heart. You see, because we can kind of get caught up in this justification by faith and kind of keep it all in the head. Adoption touches the heart because he talks about the family. And doesn't family touch our heart in in some way, shape, or form? It does, right? For the better, for the worse, for the good and the bad. God calls us back as sons and daughters. And it says that he puts his spirit inside of our heart. You know what that spirit cries out? Abba, Father, Daddy. It cries out with that kind of spirit. The same way that a small child walks up to their parents and says, Dad, Daddy, pick me up. The same way that I get home in the afternoons and my kids are all looking out the windows and they're kind of, they, can't, they want to open the door and they want to see dad. He puts that spirit inside of us that wants to be with the father. And his grace makes it possible for us to be with the father because we don't have to isolate ourselves anymore. We are sons and daughters of God by birthright in Christ. We're sons and daughters. Your kids, if you have kids, They don't have to prove their love to you, do they? They're your kids because they're your kids. This is the same that's true with God. You have nothing to prove to God. He has proven it all in Jesus for you. So we're free to rest and relax and enjoy the presence of God. The king has redeemed us. He's noticed us and he's given himself for us. There's no... There's no better example in the scripture of this, in my opinion, than 2 Samuel 9. So I'm just going to summarize it for you. David, King David, we talked about him a few weeks ago, defeats all of his enemies. And he remembers his best friend, Jonathan. Now, Jonathan and David have this sweet relationship. I remember the first time that I ever cried when I read the Bible. It was reading about David and Jonathan's relationship, how sweet their friendship was. So Jonathan has now died, and David wants to honor his family. So he thinks this, okay, what better way could I honor their family than by caring for any family members that are left of Jonathan? So he asks a servant of Saul, who was Jonathan's dad, he says, is there anyone left in your family uh, that he can show kindness to? And, And Ziba responds, and he says this, hey, yeah, there is this one son of Jonathan's left. Now, but I, but I gotta, David, i got to tell you something about this son that's left. This, this son is, well, he's crippled in both feet. He's handicapped. I mean, David, he's, he's, do you really want to show kindness to him? He's kind of, a, he's kind of an outcast, David. You want to show kindness to this guy. And what we learn about this guy named Mephibosheth is this, is that his nurse, how he became crippled is that his nurse was carrying him. 
Uh, he's five years old. They were, I don't know what they were doing. And his, his, his father, Jonathan, and his grandfather, Saul, were in battle in the mountains of Gilboa. And they both died in the same day. So five-year-old boy, your dad and your granddad die in the same day. His nurse finds out about this, and she runs in haste, and she drops him. And that's how he becomes crippled. Talk about, like, the worst day of all time, right? I mean, that's a, that is a terrible day. So here's Mephibosheth. Uh, so what does David say is the question. When Ziba tells him this news, he says, I don't care. Bring him to me anyway. I want Mephibosheth here in my house, in my palace, in Jerusalem right now. Because the thing about it is that he's in uh, Lodabar, which is a few days' journey away. So Ziba has to go and send for him and bring him back to Jerusalem. So Mephibosheth, when he's brought to King David, he's full of shame. He's full of fear. He's literally shaking, the Bible says, in front of King David. Now, what is, let's stop right there. What does that remind you of? Does it remind you of the garden in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve are before God? What are they doing? They're hiding. They're shaking. They're nervous. They don't want to be in the presence of God. This is kind of the same picture that we're getting with Mephibosheth and King David here. So Mephibosheth is shaking, and, and David tells him the first thing. He says, hey, don't fear Mephibosheth. And you know what he begins to do with Mephibosheth? She restores his land to him because his land was taken away. And you know what he says to Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth, you're going to sit at the king's table for the rest of your life. There's never going to be a day in your life where you're not in the presence of the king. You're not in the presence of royalty, Mephibosheth. There's never going to be a day that that's not true of you for the rest of your life. You know how Mephibosheth responds? David, what am I that you would want a dead dog like me? This is literally what he says. So we see he's still got this, this attitude of shame, right? That's the predominant story in his life. That's how he's responding to David's offer. And the story ends like this. It says this right here. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table. Listen to this right here. Like one of the king's sons. For Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. For he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. That's how 2 Samuel 9 ends. Mephibosheth's condition didn't change. He was still crippled. But you know what did change? His identity. Friends, this is the hope that we have because of the love of God. Is that our identity is changed. That we are sons. That we sit at the king's table. And you know what happens when you sit at the king's table? None of that other stuff matters because you're with the king. Have you ever been in a moment where you've experienced something and you said, man, I wish I could experience this for the rest of my life? Sitting at the king's table, this is what his story is for the rest of his life. And do you know what the name Mephibosheth means? To get rid of shame. Friends, this is the hope that we have in Christ. There is no more condemnation. There's no more shame in Jesus Christ. Will you, let, will, you, will you let down the walls and become vulnerable before God so that, that his love can touch your heart and that you can feel what it's like to sit at the king's table for the rest of your days? Let's pray together. Father, and I call you Father because you put that spirit in my heart. You put the spirit in our hearts. Would you lower the walls of shame that drive our lives? 
Would you reveal to us the hidden mechanisms that we have to hide ourselves with fig leaves and behind trees from your presence? Because we're not hiding from you at all. You have found us. Father, would you make us more aware of your love that would drive out the fear, that would drive out the shame so that we can experience what it means to be sons and daughters of God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.